Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, welcome back. So I want to start off by saying that I have a ton of different topics that I want to discuss in this podcast, in this video today. And the reason I bring that up is because... I'm sure, you know, if you're on YouTube, if you're in the podcast world, looking at the length of this this podcast today, it's likely going to be a lengthy one. Of course, I don't know how long it's going to be starting off here, uh, 30 minutes, 35 minutes, I don't know. But uh, I want you guys to know that this is not going to be me ranting or rambling on about like one or two subjects for a full half an hour. No, I have a ton of different things, a ton of different content that I want to get to today. I want to give you guys plenty to digest as we head into this weekend. Honestly, it's a lot for me to digest some days, but uh, I want to do my best here and provide you guys a fair bit of value. So I did title this uh, week 49 of the Silver Bull Market, continuing my series. This is the third episode. I began it two weeks ago, uh, talking about what I believe is going to be a, a many years or even decades long bull market in silver and gold. And we're, we're less than a year into silver's bull market, coming up on the one-year mark, uh, a little over a year for, for gold. And of course, the, the beginning point, I'm just marking it as the bottom for silver and gold in the second half of 2018. Uh, but I'll be honest, a lot of the topics today are going to extend far beyond just precious metals. There's not a ton to talk about in the precious metal space in terms of price, whether we're talking about fiat terms uh, or at least in dollar terms. I'm sure there's been plenty of movement in, in other fiat currencies such as the euro or, or the pound and whatnot. Uh, but even relative to other assets, you know, S&P relative to the price of gold or silver, not a ton of movement, mostly sideways, right? Not a ton of significant movement. With that being said, uh, this this Friday afternoon, I'm recording this uh, right before one o'clock uh, central time. Silver and gold have moved up a fair bit this afternoon on news of of some uh, some degradation, I'll say, of the, the Chinese trade talks. And, and I'll talk more about that here in a second. But but silver uh, up a little bit on this news, up to around 1780. Gold up a, quite a bit more, up to around 1510, as I record or last time I checked. Uh, so all things considered, a bit of a positive week for silver and gold. And, and it really has been surprising that they haven't made a big move in one direction or another uh, when it's all said and done this week. I mean, we, we had the Fed meeting. We had a ton of other Fed activity involving their, their repo operations and, and their their uh, attempts to provide liquidity to the financial system. Uh, we had, of course, we were coming off last weekend's attack on Saudi Arabia and their oil production. And, and we have a ton of other topics that, that you would think would, would spark a big move, big move in silver and gold. And yet they're kind of where we started the week, right? Around that $1,500 mark and, and maybe right under that $18 mark for silver. Uh, with that being said, there's one precious metals topic that I want to lead off with here before we get to some of these other very interesting topics. And that is a topic that I actually recorded a video on earlier this week. I ended up not publishing it because my mic was not working well and I didn't realize that until after I published it. If you guys didn't realize if the, if the audio quality is a little bit better that this week, it's, it's especially later this week, it's because I did get a new mic and, and I hope you guys appreciate that. But, but I published one earlier this week and the, the quality was just really terrible. And I think the reason was, was that the, uh, the external mic 
uh, was the, the phone didn't detect it or wasn't plugged in all the way or whatever. And the quality ended up being terrible because I think it was my phone's internal mic that was recording it. And, and the same is true for the, for the second video that I ended up not publishing. So, so I hope you guys enjoyed this quality a little bit more than, than what I've had at some points in the past. Uh, but, but that video, that podcast was on the topic of a crackdown on precious metals manipulation that's happened just in the last week or so. We had news that that the DOJ, Department of Justice here in the United States, is uh, cracking down or, or pursuing charges against J.P. Morgan's uh, commodities trading desk under the uh, RICO Act, which I forget the exact uh, name, uh, what the what the acronym stands for, racketeering, and da 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 da. I don't remember what the ICO stands for off the top of my head, but it is a act that was put into place and traditionally has been used to crack down on organized crime. I'm talking like the mafia and whatnot, and it allows them to trade, you know, uh, to charge all members of a uh, crime organization. In this case, the the commodities trading desk of J.P. Morgan for the crimes of, of just, you know, one or two people, right? And so the idea behind this is that we've known for quite some time, even before some of this news came out, that J.P. Morgan, among other banks, was very active in manipulating, at times suppressing, or maybe even pushing up the price of silver and gold, the precious metals markets. And then over time, more and more details came out. We, we uh, got uh, these, these different messages that were sent from trader to trader, oftentimes uh, traders that weren't working for the same bank, uh, coordinating action in the precious metals market. We had news of this spoofing in the precious metals market, which involves, uh, it's an illegal practice. It involves uh, placing orders in which you don't actually intend to uh, uh, actually fulfill or allowed to, to follow through, meaning they, they could place an order for X amount of contracts of, for silver or gold to buy or to sell. But then right before they're actually executed, uh, they're, they're taken off the, the table. They, they don't actually execute the trade. And it provides like a false signal to the market and other market participants. We've known for a while that that has been commonplace. We have some JP Morgan traders that, that were, have been charged or, or even, um, uh, uh, not just charged, but actually uh, found guilty of these different practices. And we also have some small charges, uh, uh, not charges, but fines, civil suits that have been successful against the likes of, uh, I think it's HSBC, um, UBS might be in there, uh, and some other ones, uh, Deutsche Bank, I think as well. But but they're mounting in the millions of dollars and not a whole lot compared to the profits that these banks actually made. But but the big news this week in terms of, of crackdown on, on precious metals is not so much no, new news about what's been going on, but more so that the Department of Justice is actually seeking criminal charges against J.P. Morgan. And of course, you know, my conclusion is that, that this is a big deal. Uh, I'm, I'm not willing to go to either extremes on it. I, I'm not going to say that this is the end of precious metals manipulation. No, I mean, central banks, I mean, there's already a ton of, of I mean, the way the market is set up, it, it allows for easy manipulation, right? The fact that they're trading a physical commodity using uh, uh, a massive amount of, of paper contracts far, that, that far exceed the amount of actual physical silver and gold being traded, uh, that allows for manipulation. It's, it's a system that is ripe for, for manipulation and price uh, suppression or, or, or control. 
And also, you know, if banks, even if J.P. Morgan or other banks are caught up in this, this, uh, these charges, I mean, they'll find other ways to do it. Uh, they'll find other ways to to manipulate and make a profit off of it. So, I'm not going to go so far as to say this is the end of precious metals uh, manipulation, or even to say that this recent investigation, which has been going on for a series of months now, has a whole lot to do with the recent move up in silver and gold. I think there's a ton of other very valid reasons for why that's happened, other than just this investigation. But I'm also not willing to go in the other direction and say that this is meaningless, that nothing's going to amount of it, that that it's business as usual. No, I mean, this is this is important developments on this front. But again, it, it's sort of a wait and see for, I think, most of us that don't have a whole lot of insider information. And anybody that claims to have insider information, you have to be very, very uh, cautious about uh, buying into that unless they have some sort of verification of it. Um, but Anyways, that's uh, I guess that's my thoughts on it. Very important news, but but it's still kind of a wait and see uh, uh, in terms of, of what's actually going to to happen as a result of this. Now, shifting gears out of just precious metals, as I said, silver and gold were up quite a bit this afternoon. Stocks down, and that was on news of China. Uh, they're canceling their trade delegation trip uh, to to again negotiate this ongoing trade deal, which has been in the works for like. I don't know, 18 months. I mean, the trade war itself is somewhere around 18 months old now. Uh, that's, that's, I mean, it, 18 months ago, how long ago was that? That was like the spring of 2018, uh, February or March of 2018. It's been going on, going on for a very long time now. It continues to escalate. The long-term trend has been towards escalation. Uh, and equa- occasionally, uh, not even occasionally, actually pretty often we get this these news articles about how China and the U.S. are on the brink of a deal, we're working on it, and then nothing ever happens. And I, I do my very best to to not listen to that noise uh, because any sort of resolution is, is so far, far off in the distance. As I've said in the past, this trade war extends far beyond just tariffs or Huawei or intellectual property infringement or anything like that. It's, it's I think, in a, a larger pseudo-conflict, a non-hot war, a cold war, if you want to call it that. I've called it that in the past. Between the U.S. and, and China, which encompasses not only this, this trade war and tariffs and currency manipulation and whatnot, but also things like Hong Kong, the situation there, North Korea, Taiwan, South China Sea, One Belt, One Road, uh, even Iran and, and the Middle East, and even those topics extend into this. And of course, uh, the the proposed tariffs against the EU by the Trump administration. I think that plays a role in this overall uh, Cold War and whatnot. So, you know, when I see these new news articles come out talking about how a trade deal is right around the corner, but then right next to it, see some news about, you know, the, the situation in Hong Kong not being resolved, the PLA on the brink of, of, you know, cracking down on those protests or North Korea lobbing some more missiles uh, into the uh, into the ocean or whatever. I mean, that that tells me that, no, nothing has really changed. Uh, but stocks were down on this and, and I think they should be down quite a bit more. Precious metals should be up quite a bit more. You know, the overall theme uh, that, that I'm seeing heading into this weekend is that obviously don't take this as investment advice, but this would be a good weekend to be very bearish on, on stocks and very bullish on precious metals, probably bullish on, on bonds as well. 
because of some of these different factors that I'll be discussing. So this is one of them, of course, uh, that that China is is canceling this trade delegation. Another further escalation is likely around the corner. Uh, more tariffs being announced by the end of the day tomorrow, Sunday. Very real possibility of that. Uh, furthermore, Trump could could um, move up some of these these implementation of tariffs in the past he has delayed. Very real possibility of that. Uh, but beyond just this this uh, um, this trade deal or or the lack thereof, uh, we also have news of Trump uh, imposing even more sanctions on Iran with the attempt of getting them to stop uh, what what I think he calls their uh, terrorist actions. Um, which is difficult to to listen to. I mean, I here's his words. Uh, they're practically broke. They are broke, and they could solve this problem very easily. All they have to do is stop with the terror. And and I think what's really unfortunate is that a lot of people that are that are all for going to war with Iran and and don't see why they possibly would at all be lashing out over the last six or twelve months against other Middle Eastern countries or the U.S., fail to understand that, that the U.S.'s economic policy against Iran largely has amounted to its own form of, of terrorism or, or at least warfare. You have to understand that the sanctions that the U.S. has done, including basically banning any oil exports out of the country, uh, has a very real effect on their economy, right? We're talking about... Uh, uh, like a major, major depression for this country, for, for Iran, a major amount of inflation, a major damage to just like the everyday, you know, civilians there in terms of their standard of living, uh, um, their food security, energy security, uh, and all of that, right? And to, for us to act as if, you know, we haven't done anything bad against them, you know, we, that we are not at all... Um, being a bully and that they're the only bullies in the region. This is not by any means me sympathizing with the Iranian regime. And I know some of my viewers always get turned off whenever I say this, but but we have to stop with this whole good guy versus bad guy talk. I mean, again, I'm not sympathizing with uh, the Iranian regime, but I can empathize. I can see where they're coming from. And and maybe we move away from this, the U.S. is a good guy and Iran is are the bad guys type of, of thinking and maybe shift towards a... You know, maybe neither of us are really good guys, right? I'm not a fan of their regime, but maybe the U.S. or Saudi Arabia, Israel aren't necessarily being the best in the situation either, the, the best, uh, the easiest to negotiate with, right? Uh, and, and I think it's it's quite clear up to this point that trying to, to force negotiations or force Iran to step down or back down, I should say, by imposing more sanctions and, and more economic warfare against them is going to be ineffective. Uh, I, I think it's still up in the air as to whether or not Iran actually carried out this attack pat, uh, last Saturday now against uh, Saudi Arabia's uh, oil facilities. Uh, but, but if they indeed did do that, uh, I think it definitely goes to show that they perhaps were underestimating their their military capabilities. As far as I know, Saudi Arabia was totally caught off guard by this, right? And if it indeed was Iran that that carried out those missile strikes, 
and and basically held at something like half of Saudi Arabia's oil production, it, it really makes you wonder just how much further they could go with their current uh, military capabilities. They could likely wipe out ninety percent of of oil production in the in the Middle East. I'm not talking just Saudi Arabia. I'm talking Saudi Arabia, uh, Qatar, which has moved somewhat closer to to Iran geopolitically, but but they could be in the crosshairs. But also uh, countries like Bahrain, uh, Kuwait, United Arab Emirates, um, Iraq, which again has moved closer to Iran, but but again could be caught if nothing else in the crossfire. Uh, Syria, Jordan. Uh, they have quite a bit in the way of capabilities. And, and you also have to wonder, what are their military capabilities against actual military forces, whether that's a U.S. bases in the region, uh, U.S. Uh, naval assets, and of course, other Middle Eastern countries such as Israel and, and, and Saudi Arabia. And, you know, I, I think with a country like Iran and their current leadership, uh, the, the way to break in through to them is not going to be through through bullying them. You know, I, I, I'm a strong believer that this is a country that has to be uh, given a favor of respect, right? Not necessarily because I think that they deserve it, but but if you want to move towards negotiations, if you want to move towards de-escalation and ultimately peace or a new deal or something like that with Iran, you have to sort of speak their their language, right? You have to... Uh, treat them in a way that that you yourself would want to be treated, and and to constantly kind of bully them through economic means, and then get angry if they do lash out at some point. To tell them that they can't export oil, but then get mad if they had all uh, respond to this basically decimation of their economy, is to treat them with a lack of respect. Right? Just because you and I may not like the Iranian regime doesn't mean that they should be treated with a total lack of of respect. I think that's going to ultimately lead to further escalation and and at some point more, right? So again, uh, this is probably another reason to be uh, bearish on on the stock market and precious metals as we head into this weekend. I don't know if Iran's going to respond over this, this next couple of days. We'll see. Uh, but but that certainly is a trend, just like with, with the trade war with China, that the overall trend is towards, towards more escalation, more tariffs, more currency devaluation of the yuan. Uh, I think it's a similar story with Iran uh, that we're moving towards further and further uh, escalation of this conflict, potentially into a full-blown hot war, right? Uh, I, th- I think we're only one, maybe two uh, major military actions away from that, whether that's another Iranian strike on, on a country in the region. And again, I'm not saying the Iranians did it, but... When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Right, uh, uh, an attack that's purported to have originated from Iran, or else some sort of military action by Israel, the U.S., or Saudi Arabia against Iran—not just their proxies in the region, and and you know Syria, Iraq, or Yemen, but the actual uh, country of Iran. Anyways, uh, moving on, uh, another topic that I find to be really interesting this week is uh, the Federal Reserve and their their 
activities this week in the repo markets. Quicker view of what the repo markets are. Uh, it is a market in which banks and other financial institutions, which need cash over the short term, use to to fund you know day to day operations and whatnot. So basically, the way it works is if they don't have a, enough cash, operating cash, what they do is they basically sell uh, a certain amount of, of an asset, usually something like treasury bonds, with the agreement that they're going to buy it back, usually the next day, overnight repo is oftentimes what we're talking about. We are going to talk more about some some other types of repo uh, agreements or operations here in, in, in a couple of minutes. But basically, there's another counterparty out there that then buys these and then sells them back at a slight yield. And, and the problem over the last uh, week or so has been that, that the rate, the yield on these overnight repo uh, agreements has been higher than usual, a higher yield as high as 10% at one point, which would signal a, a lack of liquidity, a lack of, of individuals willing to, to be the counterparty in this deal, Right be the counterparty to these banks and, and financial institutions and whatnot. It was a lack of liquidity that, that many people have been worried about for quite a while, a dollar shortage, if you will. And and because of the shortage, there was a premium on those dollars, which, which was reflected in the higher interest rate. Well, the Fed stepped in, surprisingly, this uh, Monday with a what's called an overnight repo operation. It, it amounted to them basically coming in as the counterparty on those deals on an overnight basis. And they've actually done it every single day this week now, as high as $75 billion worth a day. But the problem with it is that even that $75 billion worth hasn't been enough to satisfy the liquidity demands in the market. They're basically injecting $75 billion a day. And then because it's an overnight repo operation, you know, the next day that liquidity is then removed. But that $75 billion hasn't been enough. And so what they announced this week is that they will be doing these same overnight repo operations every day next week. Again, $75 billion a day. So it's not $75 billion times five. Uh, because it's on an overnight basis, it's just $75 billion worth of liquidity injected and then removed the following day after the bank then buys back those assets. However, they added to this uh, three different 14-day term repo operations. So, so you can think of this almost in terms of QE. Okay, Let's relate this to quantitative easing. I want to break this down for you guys. It's very important to understand the repo markets are not just a, in my opinion, not just a small corner of the market. Uh, they're actually very, very crucial to the to the viability of our financial system here in the United States and, and around the world. So QE, quantitative easing, going back to to back when it began back in 2008 or 2009, I forget it's actually, actually when it started. The Fed came out and said, we're going to buy X amount of dollars worth of, of bonds and mortgage-backed securities each month. And they just held them on their balance sheet, right? They, they used that newly created dollars. It, it was printing money, essentially. And, and put that in on the balance sheet of these banks uh, as a reserve asset, not something those banks could necessarily tap into. They could just earn interest on that. And they did this for quite a while, all the way through, I think, 2014 was when the third round of quantitative easing ended. And that was sort of on an indefinite basis. They bought those assets and they never really sold them 
back. They did do a little bit of quantitative easing, or sorry, quantitative tightening, which was the opposite of that. They actually allowed these, these assets to run off of their balance sheet, thus removing liquidity from the system for a while. I forget exactly when it began. This would have been the fall of, of 2017 is when it began, I believe, October, if I remember correctly. And then they finally stopped that uh, this September or August. They, they ended that quantitative tightening. And, and that was, again, on an indefinite basis. What they're doing with this repo operation is, is an overnight deal, right? Instead of holding these assets in their balance sheet indefinitely, they're then selling them back to the banks or financial institutions or whoever is, is in this deal the very next day. They're injecting and then removing that liquidity. Well, with these two-week repo uh, terms, it's, it's the same deal except they're lasting two weeks. And so they're doing at least $30 billion worth on each day. That amounts to $90 billion worth of liquidity that is then going to be removed from the system two weeks out in the future, right? So a little bit of a longer term impact and, and if you want to call it a solution to this liquidity crisis. However, the, the problem with this is that it, it, it's only going to satisfy a little bit of this excess uh, liquidity demand. And the Fed is likely going to still need to do this uh, this overnight repo operations uh, indefinitely. And then once those two-week repo terms uh, uh, expire and that liquidity is then removed from the system, they're again going to have a liquidity shortfall, right? And, and thus, again, putting the repo market at, at risk for another blow-up. And so they're going to need to find some long-term solution to this. And, and in the past, the Fed has done everyday repo operations like what they're doing right now uh, prior to the financial crisis when reserves were very slim and, and the market needed that extra liquidity. Uh, theoretically, with the amount of reserves that they have today, the market shouldn't need this liquidity on a daily basis. And yet that's what we're moving towards. But ultimately, this is nothing else but a precursor to a, a permanent expansion of the Fed balance sheet, a permanent injection of liquidity, uh, probably on an ongoing basis. Right. It's first going to appear as the Fed basically injecting $75 billion of liquidity, which is, for all intents and purposes, permanent at this point because they're injecting it on a daily basis. Uh, beginning this week or next week, it's going to be an additional $90 billion. So we're up to, you know, somebody do some quick math, $165 billion of liquidity that they're injecting. Basically, what amounts to $165 billion worth of, of QE light. Uh, the markets are going to throw an absolute tantrum if they try and remove that liquidity uh, two weeks from now or whenever in the future. Uh, and ultimately, the markets, I think, are going to demand more and more injection of this liquidity, more and more uh, QE, ultimately. That's what it's going to amount to. They're going to move beyond just these overnight repo operations and they're going to move to full blown QE. And that's only. You know, some have said, I think it was, uh, I forget if it was Morgan Stanley or Bank of America, I forget exactly which bank, uh, Goldman Sachs, uh, that this could be happening as soon as November, full-blown QE, by the end of 2019. Uh, but in the meantime, you know, the stock market is, is sort of ignoring this problem. Uh, the market as a whole is ignoring this liquidity problem. But how many times in the past have I said that markets are largely a function of liquidity and credit expansion? And right now, they're happy because the Fed is expanding that liquidity. But it's not going to be enough. This liquidity problem is just a short-term Band-Aid. 
And, and the Fed is going to try and solve this liquidity problem with quantitative easing by pouring a whole bunch of liquidity onto this problem. It's going to backfire. It's going to lead to, to inflation. It's going to lead to, I think, a, a what some have called like a repression of the financial system through lowering rates, through a bunch of QE. Uh, it's, it's something that's already been tried by the Bank of Japan and, and by, the, by the European Union uh, or the European Central Bank to a greater extent to, than, than what the Fed is doing right now. With very limited results and a whole lot of detrimental side effects, including uh, leaving their banks in absolutely terrible shape, both Japanese and European banks. Uh, so, I, I mean, that's the direction things are heading. QE, lower interest rates. I know the Fed came out earlier this week and basically said, like, QE is probably coming soon. But Powell even said that this is probably the last rate cut of 2019. Uh, I doubt it. Again, the markets are are screaming for more liquidity. They're screaming for more easing. And and I think we're heading into a very dangerous period of the year in which the stock market, uh, a significant decline in the stock market paired with some very weak economic growth in the last quarter in particular of uh, 2019, very easily could leave the Fed um, trying to play catch up once again. Uh, much like last year, much like last year, the fourth quarter of 2018, in which the Fed was was forced to walk back all of this super hawkish uh, uh, talk in in the first uh, three quarters of 2018, uh, I think they're going to have to do the same here. Not that what the Fed is saying is hawkish, but it's it's not as dovish as what markets would would like, or or even what they need, right? Um, now, long term, what the markets think they need is going to be the the, the death of the markets, or or you know, lead to a significant price decline. Uh, the markets certainly don't need this. Uh, the economy certainly does not need this intervention from the Fed. Uh, it's kicking the can down the road, uh, but I think the economy, the markets, uh, they would they would not be just fine if the Fed didn't act. I think it would be an utter collapse. Uh, it would be a major collapse, a crisis of our financial system, of the stock market, and, and so many other markets, but it, it would give us something to build off of. Like I said back in, in 2008, uh, I, of course, I didn't say it back in 2008, but I said in regards to 2008, you know, if that was allowed to have run its course, it would have been a very deep recession, uh, depression even, but it wouldn't have lasted all that long. Uh, and it would have given our economy and our financial system something much more stable to build off of for the future. So we could be looking at five, six percent economic growth or whatever, rather than trying to eke out, you know, two and a half or three percent uh, GDP growth. The final thing I want to talk about, and, and this is a bit of a segue into to talking about uh, the this viability of the financial system, of markets, and even the banking system, is this talk about this company called WeWork. Have you guys heard of this company, WeWork? It is a uh, largely a commercial real estate company. What they do is they they uh, lease these they um, they rent basically <laughs> from these different landlords across these con- uh, across the country uh, commercial office space largely, and they then basically rent that commercial office space out to tenants. Uh, companies that, that need office space. That's basically their business model. It's not necessarily new. It's not groundbreaking. And yet in the day and age of these, you know, unicorn companies in which uh, uh, talk of, of, I don't know, really intangible 
reasons why a company should be profitable leads to to massive valuations. What I mean by that is is how many examples have we seen of of these companies that promise that they're something different, that they found some new way to generate massive amounts of growth and profits in the future, and that because of that, they they deserve a huge valuation. WeWork is just yet another one of them. Uh, There's plenty of other companies out there that that have said just this. Uh, Lyft and Uber are two of them. Uh, Tesla is another one. Uh, Beyond Meat. I mean, th- these are all companies that that have legit products, and they have consumers that that use these services. I mean, WeWork. They're not a total sham. I mean, they people use these offices. They they have a functioning business, right? People buy Teslas. People buy the the fake Beyond Meat stuff. Beyond Meat is in very high demand, right? Uh, Uber and Lyft, people use those ride-sharing apps. However, just because people use and and, and enjoy using these services, uh, just because they have a large amount of growth, even growth in revenue, doesn't mean they're anywhere near profitable. And that's kind of the case with WeWork. They're they're extremely unprofitable. I think it's something for like every $2 in, in increase in revenue, they have something like a $1 increase in uh, uh, losses, right? Uh, it, it's it's sort of the opposite of the traditional uh, economy of scale. That as a company scales up its operations, uh, margins increase, um, and that they they ultimately become more profitable. That's not really been the case with with uh, WeWork, and they also have a ton of other problems as well. I mean, they claim they're a technology company. Again, they're not. They're they're not really anything new. They they have a lot of talk about very. Um, abstract ideas like like community and whatnot and, and use that as a justification for their their huge valuation or at least what in the past was a huge valuation something like 47 billion dollars worth that they were recently valued at uh, but but community and and the idea of being a technology company I mean that isn't what puts the proverbial um, food on the table it's not what ultimately leads to profits for for a corporation. Uh, Elon Musk can talk about how visionary he is, or, or articles can claim he's the most visionary genius since since I don't know Tesla, right? Nikola Tesla, or or Edison, or Henry Ford, or whatever. But it doesn't mean the company's anywhere near profitable, right? Uh, people throw money at companies like WeWork or Tesla, Uber, Lyft, etc., because they uh, they generate a lot of hype. They are very popular among people that want to move to towards some sort of a new 21st century type economy. And, and that's all great and fine. It's just that, again, it doesn't mean these companies are profitable. And that's the case with WeWork. They're a very massively unprofitable company, along with some major uh, uh, management problems from from their two founders. Uh, uh, I forget their exact names. There's an Adam. There's a Miguel uh, and this even prompted, uh, what's his name here, Boston Fed President Eric Rosengren to talk about how uh, companies like WeWork, he doesn't actually name them, but but he refers to them as, uh, let's see here, he refers to them as co-working companies, uh, that they pose a, a risk to the U.S.'s commercial real estate market. That if in a recession, or in, 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 from my point of view, even before a recession, if these companies go bankrupt, it can absolutely 
shatter the the commercial real estate markets in in a lot of these major uh, uh, cities like like New York, London, Boston, uh, and others. But even beyond that, there's also, I think, a certain amount of risk to the financial system. I mean, again, going back to to talking about banks and and their, um, you know, I, I brought up how how the Bank of Japan and the European Central Bank have have caused a lot of damage to European banks and Japanese banks. You know, one of the major investors in WeWork has been a bank by the name of SoftBank, run by a guy by the name of Masayoshi Son, who is the richest man in Japan. He has been, if you want to call it, very successful over the last uh, couple of years in investing in these companies. They, um, SoftBank has what I believe they call their vision fund, billions of dollars that they throw at these various unicorn companies, uh, which you know have the potential, to, I guess, to turn into the next Google, Apple, Amazon, whatever. But as a whole, they're not profitable. I mean, that's kind of the theme with a lot of these unicorn companies. And, and they threw a very large amount of money at this one, um, WeWork. And, and in fact, uh, the, the valuation, the, the amount of money that they invested was like a number of billions of dollars over multiple periods. And it at one point is either that or the lease liabilities that basically valued WeWork at something like $47 billion. But over time, you know, as WeWork ultimately came up with these plans and, and applied to basically go public with an IPO, we see the valuation of this company decline from $47 billion to today, like less than $10 billion. And, and ultimately, you know, for my opinion, it's, it's, a, it's a worthless company. Uh, again, this company, their, their business model is not really anything new. Uh, it's not like they own any of this property, right? So it's not really an asset of theirs. They're just leasing it from these landlords. It's not really worth anything. And then they're hugely unprofitable. They lose a ton of money. And so what that means is that those billions of dollars that, that SoftBank put into this company, and, and again, this is not the only unicorn company that they've invested in, that it's they're going to have to write down as a loss at some point. When when WeWork files for bankruptcy, it's going to be a loss, a multi-billion dollar loss for SoftBank. But I think what's important to understand that those couple billion dollars is not going to totally destabilize SoftBank or the the Japanese banking system or anything like that necessarily that that possibility exists I guess but but this is a broader theme of these unicorn companies which I think pose a very existential threat to the financial system because of how uh, unprofitable they are and because of how much banks like SoftBank has invested in them as well as just investors mom and pop investors I mean you look at their exposure uh, retail investors to companies like Tesla they would likely be have massive exposure to a company like WeWork if WeWork was publicly traded at this point. Uh, the, the amount of money that they stand to lose when these cult companies ultimately go belly up, whether it's before or during this next recession, it, it's in the tens, maybe even hundreds of billions of dollars, right? WeWork is one of them, but you can add to that list Uber and Lyft and Beyond Meat, which is a viable company, just not, should not be valued as high as it is now. And you have other ones. You have companies like uh, uh, Snapchat. You know, I don't think Facebook's Facebook's can go belly up, but it's not probably nearly as valuable as it is right now. Uh, uh, Twitter, you know, some of those other type of social media companies. 
Uh, you, you have, you know, there's plenty of other ones that, that don't come to mind uh, right now as I'm talking, but, but plenty of these unicorn type companies that are not special, right? They're not the unicorn that maybe Google was or Amazon was in the past. Maybe one out of 10 of them will be extremely successful and profitable, but the rest are going to be written down as, as losses. They're, they're likely good to go bankrupt. And, and when you add up their over, overall valuation, I mean, we work 47 billion, uh, Tesla's in, in a similar ballpark, uh, 40 to $50 billion valuation, or at least it has been in the past. Uh, Snapchat, you can throw that in there. Uh, the losses from, from beyond meat in terms of, of market cap, um, Uber and, and Lyft and, and many other, um, companies that are just not viable. They're not profitable. I mean, it's craziest world that we live in today that the marketplace is what it is. Uh, a lot of it goes back to the fed and, and their, uh, kind of encouragement of, of lending to people that are not worthy of, of being lent as much money as they are. I'm talking billions of dollars. Part of it is the Fed and their zero or low interest rate policy. Part of it is that the moral hazard that's created by, by uh, the Fed that, that when these banks take on a huge amount of risk. Uh, for instance, SoftBank, let's say SoftBank is, is on the brink of going under because of these types of deals gone bad. Uh, the Bank of Japan has created a certain amount of moral hazard because they're likely to intervene. They're not going to let SoftBank collapse. They're probably going to nationalize them or bail them out. And, and that's moral hazard. When you create uh, a high risk-taking behavior because those traders or those bankers believe they're going to have somebody to back them up when it's all said and done, that's very risky, Right. Uh, so, I mean, that's part of it. And then another part of it is just a lot of these banks that, that facilitate things like these IPOs, uh, the, the rating agencies that, that rate a lot of these uh, corporate companies far better than they should be in terms of, of the rating of their corporate debt. I mean, I think they're all kind of complicit in this. It's, it's I think, a huge uh, uh, facade um, that is going to be torn down eventually. Uh, in the coming years. And we're much, much closer today in 2019 than we were in, you know, 2016, 2015, maybe early on in some of these like fang bubbles back when, when, you know, the fang bubble was what everyone was kind of ranting against. Uh, yeah, Facebook probably shouldn't be valued as high as it is today. Amazon, probably same is true there, though they do have a huge company uh, and they huge amount of revenues and, and, and pretty decent profits and, and all things considered, they're going to be fine. Same thing goes for Google. But Netflix is, I think, massively overvalued. Uh, and, and Apple very well could be overvalued as well. But but those companies are, are looking like, uh, like extremely solid fundamentals compared to the likes of WeWork and Uber and Lyft and Tesla and, and many other companies that are just not going to cut it. Uh, we work struggling to make a profit in a non-recessionary environment. Same thing goes for Tesla. What happens when we slip into the next recession and we're seeing negative 2, 3, 5% GDP growth or even worse, uh, a depression? What's going to happen to these companies at that point? So anyways, I said at the beginning this was going to be a long podcast and indeed it is over 40 minutes. I hope you enjoyed this discussion today. I'd love to hear your thoughts down below in the comment section. As always, thank you guys from the bottom of my heart for watching this video, listening to this podcast, and God bless.